Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Darren Ingalls. Darren is also a naturopathic physician that specializes in Lyme and also the treatment of autistic children. Um, In our conversation today, we talk a lot about his new book, The Lyme Solution, and his five-part plan uh, for Lyme patients, and um, it's full of a lot of clinical pearls, and um, I hope you enjoy this conversation today with Dr. Ingalls. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Ingalls. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me, Christine. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. And I know that we've known of each other's work for a while, and you're actually really good friends with my colleague, Dr. Dang, who um, many of my patients know. And it's just fun that our paths have uh, finally crossed and that I get to pick your brain uh, during this podcast. So I'm so excited to learn more from you today. Oh, well, it'll be my pleasure. Great. Well, I know we have a lot to cover, but as many uh, doctors um, out there treating chronic illness, a lot of us have our own personal either story or encounter with um, chronic illness. And I know that um, your journey began with um, treating Lyme disease with a personal story. And can you just share that with our audience a little bit so they understand what you've been through to get to this information? Sure. And, you know, it's interesting. I think so many of us, you know, kind of go into our field because we have, you know, personal experiences with different illnesses that, uh, you know, give us a very uh, quick education on how to deal with it. And I was really no different. I had moved to Connecticut and only been there for about a year and a half. And uh, about three weeks before I was set to open my own practice, I got infected with Lyme and I had classic Lyme disease, you know, headache, fever, bullseye rash. And uh, I started with treatment with doxycycline, which is you know, the standard recommended treatment. And after four days of treatment, I felt perfectly fine. And I thought, okay, you know, I've been in Connecticut, I got Lyme, I got over it, and uh, that was fine. But as I started my new practice, I was doing everything and working very long days. And after about eight months of keeping up that schedule, I started to get symptoms again. So I said, okay, well, you know, I'll just go back on doxycycline and that'll be fine. And I did a month of doxy and they didn't feel any better at all. And I changed antibiotics and I didn't feel any better. And so I started working with a local Lyme doctor. You know, uh, being your own doctor is never a good idea. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I reached out to a colleague of mine and she started help guiding me on different, you know, antibiotic therapies. And I, I just continued to get worse and worse, actually, for about nine months. And after nine months of antibiotics and really feeling quite horrible, I uh, had known of a doctor in New York City who I had several patients that had seen him, uh, and uh, he uses Chinese herbal therapy. So I went to New York City to see him, and he started me on a treatment program. And after about three or four weeks, I was about 85% improved. So it was kind of my wake-up call that you know I needed to go back to my naturopathic roots and really start looking at what I was doing, how I was doing it, and of course how I was living my life. And uh, you know I think I just kind of had the perfect storm of you know being run down, wearing down my terrain, and it just gave that little critter an opportunity to uh, to resurface and start creating problems again. So, you know, once I kind of got back on the right path and started taking better care of myself and following, you know, his treatment plan, it took me about two to three years to feel like I really was back to normal. Uh, So it was a very long process. But, uh, you know, as I started implementing the things I was doing for myself with my other Lyme patients, I found that they were, you know, getting better faster, uh, even those that had failed antibiotic therapy. 
so it was really my uh, my introduction into the Lyme world. And uh, now that's been uh, you know 16 plus years later, and thousands of Lyme patients, you know, I've had the opportunity to kind of see how you know this approach really helps people get over the hump and. And then, of course, when I wrote my book and started looking at all the research out there, it was really interesting, you know, what gets published online and that uh, a lot of things I think we we assume about Lyme, you know, we find really aren't true and things we think are going to work don't. So uh, it was really very eye opening to see uh, what was out there. And uh, we see now that Lyme really has this capacity to trigger an autoimmune inflammatory reaction. And I think, you know, we tend to focus a lot on the infection itself and kind of forget everything else that Lyme is doing to our immune system. So, you know, my book was really kind of written from the uh, standpoint of, you know, how do we not just treat the infection, but really kind of look at the overarching, you know, effect on the immune system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you were at, you know, what I consider ground zero, right, for Lyme. And so I know that, you know, having this experience in New England, I'm sure you've had, um, you know, your practice is full of, you know, Lyme patients. So uh, you've learned a lot, I'm sure, along the way, as um, I've learned a lot. My patients are our greatest teachers. Right. And so, um, but I think what you're saying, um, which I completely agree with, is that, you know, why Lyme might be controversial still in conventional medicine because it's outside of this conventional paradigm of infectious disease where you have a bug, you give a drug, it's gone. And we just don't see that as your story, um, you know, also illustrates. And so, um, you know, fast forward, here you are after all this experience, you wrote a book called The Lyme Solution. And I think, um, you know, it's I admire, I admire, first of all, that you wrote a book. And second of all, being able to distill this knowledge and your experience into this framework, I think, and um, you've really covered a lot of really important factors that I think get overlooked um, in the treatment of Lyme and especially um, incorporating our naturopathic roots and philosophy. So can you walk us through, you have five parts and the first, um, you know, part is fix your digestion. So how do you approach a Lyme patient? And let's just walk through your five parts. Sure. And, you know, I guess I should qualify, you know, this book was really written for patients uh, as a guy that, that I just, you know, I started realizing I was coming across people that were in areas that were not necessarily endemic for Lyme. They didn't have any practitioners in their area to work with. And so I really wanted to have a tool that, you know, someone can really do on their own. So there's only one chapter in the book that you really need a practitioner to help, you know, guide you with these therapies and pretty much everything else in there is something that people can do on their own. So, mm -hmm. you know, this really is real written as a self-help book for Lyme patients uh, so just as if people, if they look at the book and they kind of go, well, gosh, it seems kind of, you know, very rudimentary or basic, you know, but understand that that was the context in which it was written so that anybody out there could pick up the book, start implementing these these steps mm -hmm. uh, being too complex. I mean, Lyme is obviously very complex and uh, a book I don't think could really cover everything that Lyme entails, but mm -hmm. this was my effort to try and, you know, simplify it as much as possible. Yeah. And I, um, before we dive in, I'm so happy that you shared that. And that was your context because I'm sure you and I are both so frustrated when we see all these people out there being so ill and uh, taking so much time before people really acknowledge why they're sick and getting on the appropriate treatment. So I think this is really admirable that you're putting this, um, you know, in the hands of people so they feel empowered and looking at maybe their chronic illness or their autoimmune condition from this lens. 
Yeah, and you know, just a, a quick statement. You know, we now identified Lyme in every state in this country, so mm-hmm. there is no place that you are immune from Lyme. And although it's still endemic in you know New England, the Central Midwest, you know, but you know, I just relocated to California. And, you know, even the CDC has identified that California is the fifth fastest growing state for Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's mm-hmm. spreading. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, you know, when we take a history, it's really, you can't, it's not just growing up in Connecticut. And I think, I think the mindset has shifted, but there's still a ways to go um, with the paradigm for people to realize that this can be their issue if they haven't, you know, grown up in those, um, you know, obvious states and everything. So thanks for uh, bringing that up. Yeah. So step one is really uh, fundamental, you know, uh, gut issues. And uh, I work with so many people, as I'm sure you do, that, you know, they've got this long history of gastrointestinal problems and whether it's constipation or diarrhea or gas or bloating, you know, there's some evidence that their gut isn't really functioning as optimally as it should. And what we know, of course, from the literature is that, you know, up to 80 percent of our immune function stems from the gut. So when the gut's not working well, the immune system doesn't work well. And so I think, you know, as a foundational core thing to start working on and improving your health, you know, we need to make sure that everything in your your stomach and your intestines is really doing everything we want it to do, that you're digesting your food, you're absorbing your food, uh, and then that, that's optimizing everything else that stems from that. So I just talk a lot about, you know, different nutrients that people can start implementing into their program to heal their gut if they've got any kind of, you know, hyperpermeability or what we kind of casually call leaky gut. Uh, there are a lot of nutrients that can help, you know, improve the integrity of the intestinal lining so that you're not getting that that leaky effect and these large food molecules aren't passing through, you know, stimulating the immune system in a negative way. And, of course, there's so much research coming out about our microbiome, our, our little gut bugs that play a crucial role in, gosh, it seems like everything nowadays, you know, from mm-hmm. cancer to heart disease to chronic infection. And I think, you know, most of us are exposed at some point in our life to something, whether it's antibiotics or chemicals or things that influence that microbiome. So really trying to get that back on par uh, gives our immune system a much better opportunity to function as well as it possibly can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think just with our food supply and then, you know, the environmental uh, toxicants that you mentioned, um, glyphosate, you know, all of these insults to our gut, we're up against a lot. And then from my perspective too, Lyme, that not only includes Borrelia, but the co-infections can also affect the nervous system in the gut and, and, and as well as the immune system. So um, people with Lyme, I feel like are up against a lot with their digestion. Do you have any favorite nutrients that you felt um, work when you um, work? on this step? Yeah, well, I, uh, I love glutamine, you know, mm-hmm. glutamine is amino acid that's very nutritive to uh, the small intestine. So um, I think a lot of people that are prone to SIBO and these type of things uh, benefit from glutamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so glutamine is great. It's a powder. It's amino acid. It's easy for people to take. It's inexpensive. So I use a lot of glutamine, a lot of probiotics, of course, and uh, I think you know we're at a point with probiotics that I'm not sure we have uh, great data on what the optimal strain is for each person. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I do have a, a handful of favorites that I outline in the book that I just clinically use and I find good clinical results from. 
Uh, but I think probiotics for a lot of people, they benefit from that. Uh, of course, omega-3 fatty acids for their anti-inflammatory effects. And at least in my patient population, I find a lot of people really don't eat a lot of foods that are high in these fatty acids, whether it's fish or nuts and seeds and things of that nature. So this is a really great uh, supplement to help, you know, keep the inflammation down, keep your motility going the way it should and things moving through as you'd like. Um, so uh, mm-hmm. those probably some of the top ones I use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such an important foundational first step. So I'm glad you highlight that. And then number two is nourishing the body. What What do you mean by nourishing the body in this step? Well, nourishing the body uh, is really uh, more about diet. And, uh, you know, having tried various diets uh, with Lyme patients, what I kind of settled on for myself and found seems to help most of my patients is an alkaline diet. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's about really eating foods that alter your body pH. Uh, You are not going to eat anything that significantly changes your blood pH. I want to qualify that because people go, well, your blood pH doesn't change. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're right. It doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, But it does change it at a cellular level. And I was actually surprised when I wrote the book and I was doing research because I've read books over the years from various naturopathic doctors and other holistic health people on an alkaline diet. This has been around for decades. Uh, But I was shocked to find that there was hardly any research out there on an alkaline diet. I think I came across four studies. It was uh, so disappointing. But I can appreciate that there's no money in this and people aren't going to invest, you know, millions of dollars into something that they're not going to get their return on. Mm -hmm. Studies that were done, they were all very positive. And I think, you know, physiologically, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, our body really functions best in an alkaline state at a cellular level, you know, with the exception of the stomach, the bladder, and for women, the vaginal area, which are very acidic to protect against outside invaders. You know, the rest of your body is actually pretty alkaline. So it's not about the pH of the food. It's about how the food breaks down in the body. That's what affects your cellular pH. So, you know, the end result of acid formation is generally inflammation. So essentially, this is an anti-inflammatory diet. And there are other diets out there. You know, there's a paleo diet. There's what's called the anti-inflammatory diet. Uh, They're all kind of hybrids of the same thing. I think the biggest difference in what I've observed in an alkaline diet versus a paleo diet, which is probably the closest thing, is a lot of people I see when they say, oh, I'm eating paleo, is that they're consuming a lot of animal protein. Mm Mm-hmm. I think there's some uh, interesting research coming out that high animal protein consumption can lead to kidney problems. You know, that protein is actually hard for your kidneys to break down. You know, the average, I think, American needs about 75 grams of protein. And I think the average male consumes uh, well over 100 grams of protein a day. Oh, wow. So uh, over time, uh, that can be a little bit taxing. And I have seen quite a few people that are in very early stage kidney disease Uh, so I think, you know, if we kind of go back to our true paleo forefathers, you know, we didn't kill every day. We killed when we could. So I think we still, our diet was mostly what we could forage off the land and pull out of the ground. Uh, so this is probably a little bit closer to our paleo forefathers. And so what it really boils down to is that you're eating mostly a plant-based diet and you kind of keep your animal protein down to 20% or less of your total intake for the week. And so I like it because I think it's very sustainable. It's doable for people. They're not really uh, restricted on too many things that I say, look, just don't eat completely. There are foods I outline as being very acid forming in the body. So things like dairy products and processed junk foods, 
uh, and unfortunately coffee, which I love. <laughs> Don't take away our coffee, right? No, <laughs> no, but it's important. Well, you know, and it's most Lyme patients because the energy usually suffers. You know, coffee is a nice little pick me up to keep your energy motoring along. But I know for myself, when I was in the throes of Lyme, if I had a sip of coffee, my neuropathy would flare up within minutes. Mm-hmm. I tested it over and over, and I, I, as much as I hated to admit it, I could see that very clearly it was affecting me. So even that concept, well, it's just a little bit. You know, for some people, that little bit is too much. Mm-hmm. So. Um, mm-hmm. As a general rule, when I, I, I advise people when they're starting this kind of diet, it's like, look, just toe the line, stay away from the foods that are very acid forming. This may not be a forever thing. I mean, I'm at a point now where I can have coffee from time to time and it doesn't bother me like it used to. Mm-hmm. So if body heals and improves, your tolerance will be better. But when you're first starting it, if you can kind of toe the line and stick to the diet, I do find people respond very well to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then do you measure um, pH with saliva or urine or do you just go be- um, based off of symptoms if people are following the diet um, no, correctly? I, yeah, no, I like when people start this to go buy some pH strips and test their uh, urine several times a day, you know, first thing in the morning and then about 20, 30 minutes after they have a meal. Uh, and usually after about two weeks, people get a pretty good sense about whether they're staying alkaline with what they're eating. And, uh, you know, I tell them, keep doing it until you're consistently alkaline and then maybe just check it periodically as needed. But I think, you know, once people kind of get the program down and they know what they should be eating, they don't have to keep checking it regularly. But initially, it's a really great idea because I've had some people who felt they were really doing a great job and they keep testing their pH and it's very acidic. So it tells that they're still getting something in their uh, world that's keeping their body more acid form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a really inexpensive tool to uh, monitor uh, pH paper. You can pick that up Amazon, any health food store. I agree. I think that's a great idea. And then once you probably are on the right diet, you self-regulate very uh, quickly because you see that foods that are going to create inflammation, you feel them pretty immediately. So no, that's a great tip. And I, um, I haven't, you know, the diet question always comes up in practice. And I know there's so many trends between paleo, ketogenic, vegan, this, that, and it, it's hard. I mean, it's a, it's a hard, um, you know, topic, but I think um, you've chosen really a wonderful um basically protocol to follow to decrease inflammation. So I'm excited to incorporate that more with um, when I get back from maternity leave, um, <laughs> giving me some tips here. Um, the keto diet, I think is really, you know, it seems to be the flavor of the month and mm-hmm. it's just being touted as being a great diet for everything. You know, I just find keto diet for a lot of people is very difficult to sustain. I think it's a great induction diet mm-hmm. long term. Uh, and there's at least been a, a few studies that suggests that long term, this may not be such a great idea for a lot of people. So um, I, I, again, I, I wanted something that uh, would be sustainable for people. And I think, you know, an alkaline diet, it becomes a lifestyle. It's nothing that's overly difficult and people don't feel deprived of anything. Uh, so again, I think it's a little easier for people to follow. Absolutely. Especially when we're asking our patients to do so much with protocols and therapies and, you know, we have to interact with food all the time. So that can be very psychologically taxing when we um, give people too hard of a diet to follow. So I, I, I agree. Um so number three is a big topic, right? So treat infections. So how do you approach treating the infections? Yeah. So, you know, this is where I think uh, those of us in the Lyme world will probably have very differing opinions. And I don't know that they're right or wrong. They're just different. I can, I can, I can speak from my own experience. Again, having been someone who was on antibiotics for an extended period of time, 
uh, and actually not getting better at all, but getting much worse. Uh, I think that tends to be a fair number of people I work with who've been down that pathway and have not been successful. Uh, and again, there's some research out there with the antibiotics long-term that uh, the benefits are while you're on it and then you lose it when you come off or there's no benefit at all. And of course, I get very concerned about what it's doing to our microbiome, not just our gut, but our, I mean, we have a microbiome in all our tissues. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we fully appreciated what happens uh, when you're on antimicrobials like that for such an extended period of time. I mean, I've, I've had one uh, woman who was on uh, antibiotics continuously for 12 years, wow. and she was hospitalized three times because of the antibiotics. And in my mind, I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, where do you draw a line in the sand and say maybe this isn't the right path for her? So, you know, I think we we don't know that we ever get rid of Lyme completely. You know, mm-hmm. right now, you don't really have the tools to measure whether Lyme is still in your body. Is it still active? You know, we're still dependent on tests that are questionable at best. So since we're measuring, you know, sort of the immune response to the microbe, which tells us very little about its activity, um, I, I'm of the opinion that I don't know that we ever get rid of Lyme completely. Um, I we, agree. Know that, mm-hmm. we know that it's been around for a long time. You know, we pulled an Iceman out of Austria, 5,000 years old, and they did a DNA sample of the blood and found evidence of Borrelia then. So uh, I think this is an old organism that's been around a long time. And why it resurfaced in the 70s and 80s, you know, who knows. Um, But I think, you know, this is probably an organism that a lot of us get exposed to. We all don't get ill from it. So in in my mind, when I'm approaching, you know, treating the infection, I'm really thinking about how do we control microbial load while we're really continuing to work on the terrain to keep it healthy enough that it will manage it on its own. And the way I always equate this, you know, if you get chicken pox when you're five years old, you can get shingles when you're 55 years old, and it's the same virus that's been in your body for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. in the body changes that it becomes opportunistic and then it starts to create problems. And I think Lyme just happens to be in a very exceptional opportunistic microbe. Mm-hmm. So if we can really, again, fix the terrain Uh, that may help keep it at bay. But in the meantime, when you've got an overload, much like an overgrowth of yeast or any other microbe, you know, we do want to help control that. Mm -hmm. I favor herbs in that I think they're very effective at controlling the load without compromising our microbiome, at least to the extent that we see with antibiotics. And, you know, if you go online and you read about different herbal protocols, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of them. And, you know, what I've observed is that they all work to varying degrees with different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I outline in my book is what I personally used and what I've used with most of my patients. Um, the protocols I've used most, uh, again, I started with Dr. Zhang in New York City. His protocol is really a series of Chinese herbal formulas. And for people who aren't familiar in Chinese medicine, they really don't use herbs by themselves. They're always mixed in formulas. So I think Three is probably the lowest you'll see in most formulas, and it can be as many as 12 or 14 herbs. So what he did is he looked at traditional Chinese formulas, then looked at the modern pharmacology of what these herbs do. And so he kind of calls it modern Chinese medicine, where it's a combination of traditional Chinese medicine plus our current understanding of what these herbs are doing uh, pharmacologically. And that's how he formulated these different uh, products. So I, I like it that I think they work very synergistically. Uh, I rarely see Hertzheimer reactions with them. You know, I think the the mix of the herbs seems to mitigate that pretty well. Uh, I rarely see any kind of gastrointestinal problems. 
So I think they're very well tolerated clinically. Uh, they're the most effective protocol that I've used with patients. Uh, the downside to it is that, you know, it's a lot of capsules, mm-hmm. if you, several different formulas. But, you know, there's several formulas that help address the microbe. Uh, but it's also addressing the totality of everything else Lyme does. So there's a formula that's anti-inflammatory, another formula to help improve circulation, another formula to help boost your immune system. So I like it that I think it's the most comprehensive of all the the protocols that I know of. And I too, I mean, I agree. I think a lot, probably patients who find you or myself, they've um, typically failed antibiotic, you know, treatment and so needing a different approach. And, you know, us both being uh, naturopathic doctors, um, there's a wisdom, you know, with herbs, we're not just isolating an active ingredient and asking the body to work with that. We're, um, you know, herbs are intelligent and there's a synergistic uh, phenomenon we see when we combine them. So I think um, I'm excited to, you know, see your protocols. We, um, We've um, used a lot of Buner's herbs, which is another herbalist in the community. Um, but Dr. Zhang, I know, is really um, well-respected and has a lot of great results. And I'm, it's nice that you're using capsules because we use a lot of herbal tinctures and not all of our patients can um, tolerate the alcohol. So it's just good to have options. Well, and that's exactly it, is that I tell people, look, whatever protocol we start with, we're going to go six to eight weeks. And at that point, you know, depending on how you feel, we'll make that decision about whether we want to continue with it or if it's time to you know, cut bait and try a different formula. And I've had some people, we start down one path and they're not responding the way we want and we change and then they do beautifully. So, you know, everyone's Lyme is their Lyme and <laughs> you just have to accept that, uh, what works for one person may not work for, for you. Uh, but, you know, I've also used a lot of the Cowden protocol. Uh, Dr. Lee Cowden, who is a cardiologist, uh, helped develop this. And these are, again, these are tinctures uh, that were that come mostly from the Amazon, Peru area of South America. And uh, I like a lot of these herbs. There's a woman at the University of New Haven, Dr. Eva Sappy, who got Lyme herself. She's a researcher, and I'm sure you're familiar with her work. And she actually started studying these herbs uh, in vitro, uh, but at least comparing it with antibiotics, particularly doxycycline. And what her research found is that it actually, A, works better than doxycycline, but B, doxy only works on Lyme when it's in its sort of uncoiled form, where the herbs were actually treating Lyme in all its different forms. So uh, I think at least in vitro, there's some pretty good evidence that it might be a bit more effective than even doxycycline. Mm -hmm. We know in vitro studies are what they are, but uh, at least there's been some research into them. And clinically, again, I've used them a lot and I have found good uh, results from it. But, you know, yeah, Stephen Buhner is a great herbalist. He's got a a good uh, protocol. Uh, Byron White, I've used a lot of Byron White's uh, formulas. Uh, Susan McCamish at Beyond Balance, again, also has some very potent formulas. Um, I think what I find with Byron White and uh, Beyond Balance is I I see a bit more herxing uh, with those formulas. I think they're very potent. They're very strong. So even a few drops goes a long way. Um, With the Cowden and the Zhang protocol, I see less herxing. So that's kind of why I guess I've... uh, sort of steered people more in those directions, at least to start. Um, you know, the Dr. Zhang stuff is great. The down biggest downside to it is cost. It, it's expensive mm-hmm. and it's a uh, cost prohibitive for a lot of people, but you know, again, it's another option out there. So, you know, my, my approach is like, look, here's all the different options. 
and, you know, let's meet people where they're at, you know, in terms of what they can take, what they will take, what they can afford. And then hopefully between all the different protocols we have out there, I think when you look fundamentally at what all these herbs are doing, they're really doing the same thing. You know, there's something that's antimicrobial, there's something that's anti-inflammatory, there's something that's helping improve circulation. I mean, they're really kind of addressing the same fundamental problem. So, um, if you just start down one path and again, you're not getting the results that you're expecting, then don't be shy about trying something different. I, again, I typically give it six to eight weeks. Uh, if you get to that mark and you don't feel any different, I don't think I've ever seen anyone that really started to turn a corner after the third month or the fourth month of being on the same exact protocol. So I uh, tend to change at that point. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I think you bring up a lot of great points. I mean, everyone is going to, um, you know, be individual and in how they respond. So what works for your friend might not work for you. And so not being discouraged. And then there's so many um, great formulas out there. So we have a lot of options and we all kind of get in our, um, you know, our niche or our wheelhouse of what herbs we see work. But if they're not working, um, there's a lot to choose from. So I, I like that. It's not just like, oh, try this antibiotic. Oh, that's that's all our option, or maybe there's obviously different options of antibiotic combinations, but herbs just, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of options out there for people and not to get discouraged, but to find what works for you. And then also with probably, um, both our perspectives, you know, this is a marathon, marathon, not a sprint in treatment. And so we have to, you know, just have patience. And also, um, you know, I like to rotate, you know, different herbs and things. So having a lot of different options available, I think is important as well. Yeah, well, I said that's the beauty of it. And as you mentioned, the nice thing about herbs is that they're doing so much more for your body. You know, plants have this wisdom where, you know, they affect us in, in more than more ways than I guess we think about. Again, we're not just taking an herb because of its antimicrobial effect. You know, it's antioxidant and it's doing all these other beneficial things for the body. So, you know, we just get, I think, more clinical benefit from herbs than we do from antibiotics that really just kill the bug. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're, we're, we're adding more to the body by using herbal medicine. Mm -hmm. Agree. Absolutely. So um, step number four, I think is a really important step. And I think that this is one of the things that gets most overlooked, maybe um, in the conventional model, but you have um, step number four is remove toxins. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, if you look at the average American that gets exposed over 80,000 chemicals a year, uh, it's not rocket science to figure out that we are being bombarded with things that really undermine our, our bodies and undermine our immune system. And to a certain degree, we can control a lot of it. So it's really recommendations of how to clean up your home, how to clean up your environment, you know, get rid of all these toxic chemicals that you might be using to clean your home or, you know, pesticides and fertilizers and all these things, you know, around your yard, because there's a cumulative effect of all these chemicals. And in reality, you know, nobody really studies the long-term effects of these chemicals when it's a single chemical, let alone when it's in combination with thousands of others. So uh, it's uh, prudent, I think, that anyone who has any kind of chronic illness, and actually even if you don't, just to keep yourself healthy is to start going through the house, go through all your cupboards, go through your garage and start, you know, pulling anything out that has something in it that uh, might be potentially toxic to your body and get rid of it and uh, appropriately of course and then you know there's fortunately a lot of natural products out there that will keep your house spick and span and clean and keep your yard looking nice without having to resort to these things that are potentially more damaging to your body 
so, you know, that's anything from, you know, so what you're cleaning your house with to products you use, you know, when you're in the shower to makeup for women. Uh, I mean, all of these things that, you know, your body can ingest, absorb through the skin, uh, we need to be mindful of that uh, they do have that cumulative effect on your body. So this is, a, I think, a very easy, inexpensive thing that anybody can do. It doesn't require anything more than a little bit of time. Uh, and um, I think, you know, over a longer period of time, it does have an impact on your overall health. So, you know, control what you can. You know, you can't control the farmer down the road necessarily that might be spraying their crops with a pesticide, but at least in around where you live, uh, you have 100% control over that. So take advantage of that and, uh, you know, make your home a safe haven. Uh, and if you can control your work environment or even a school environment, great. Uh, that always helps. But um, the other part of that that I, I, I talk about more depth is mold. And uh, I'm sure you've experienced this too. You know, mold is the one thing I think uh, probably mimics Lyme more than anything else. And I've just seen so many people that end up with mold in their home and have no idea. And they go on for months or years of Lyme treatment uh, thinking, boy, my Lyme's just resistant. It's not getting any better. And then we come to find out that they've got a leak in their roof or their basement and, uh, you know, they've got a decent amount of mold that's actually contributing to their health. So, uh, you know, I, I was expecting a lot of mold when I lived in Connecticut because it's an old area with, you know, homes that are 200, 300, 400 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, here in California, I was surprised the number of people I've seen here since I've been here that have leaks in their homes and have terrible mold issues. I thought, well, it's a dry environment. You know, we probably don't see very much of it. But, you know, even in an arid environment, uh, you can still get indoor mold and not be aware of it. So, uh, I think, you know, particularly if you've been down the line path and things have been somewhat resistant, if you haven't investigated, you know, get your home tested, make sure there's no mold that you don't know about. And if there is, there are fortunate things you can do to remediate your home. And if you've had that exposure help, you know, uh, relieve your body burden of, you know, mycotoxins. And if you've got mold allergy, you can treat mold allergy. So there is a way of treating it. Uh, it's just you need to have that awareness that that might be a contributing factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely see the same thing. And I think the message you and I both want is if you're not getting better, continue to have that detective hat on because there's always a reason um, why. And I think mold, um, I practice down in California as well. And um down and not only in the Bay Area, but also I go down to Southern California a few times a year. And in both, there are different climates, but but in both areas, I'm so shocked with how much mold, um, you know, people are struggling with, especially in the Bay Area. Um, and it's it's a hard problem to solve because it is, you know, I think a lot of people get nervous about, um, you know, their home um, and the cost of that and everything. But it's it's really. Uh, really vital um, to people's health to deal with that um, because some of our patients won't get better unless that's addressed. What's your favorite um, test for mold? Um, if people are maybe out there listening and suspecting um, that they might have mold in their home, um, what test do you like to run as a screen? Uh, well, uh, for, for the home or for themselves? Um, we can talk about both, but the home um, first. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, I think you've got to find a local uh, company that does mold testing in terms of the type of testing. You know, there's a few different ways to do it. I think uh, we see the best results for companies that do a combination of what they call spore trapping, uh, where they basically come in. It looks like a fan and instead of blowing air out, it sucks air in. 
and it sucks it into a cartridge, and then they use that cartridge to play it out to see if the mold spores got trapped. Uh, there's another test out there called ERMI. Uh, ERMI is a way of basically kind of evaluating how much mold you had based on a dust sample. So it's a sort of a longer-term evaluation of mold that may be in the home. So I like the combination of the two. Uh, there's a newer test uh, called a HertzMe2, which is sort of an abbreviation version of an ERMI. Uh, that looks at some of the molds that are known to be some of the more toxin-producing ones. But um, that gives you a pretty good idea about your exposure. And the one thing I like about spore trapping is that they can go from room to room, and they can isolate specifically what room might be the bigger problem. So at least if you need to have anyone come in and do any kind of remediation, they know where to start. They're not just tearing your whole house apart. Mm -hmm. uh, but for people, you know, there's a lab called Great Plains Lab that does a urine mycotoxin test. And uh, again, there's a way to do it that you can kind of stir up the pot a little bit to get your body to excrete these mycotoxins using glutathione. And so well, usually people have taken take glutathione for a few days and then on the fourth day collect a urine sample. And uh, that gives us a, a, a relative idea about what the body burden might be of mycotoxins. So... You know, there's a way to test your home. There's a way to test you. Uh, Richie Shoemaker, who's probably regarded as one of the, the gurus in the mold world, uh, he talks a lot about mycotoxicity, and definitely this is a problem for some people. But uh, he neglects to talk about mold allergy, which is actually an immune reaction to mold spores. And I find a lot of people that have had mold exposure uh, they have mold allergy as much or more than mycotoxicity. So there are really two different problems related to mold. One is, you know, an immune reaction to mold spores. The other one is some molds secrete this chemical that when you breathe it in is very toxic to your body. So it's not an immune reaction. It's just a direct damaging effect of that chemical. Mm -hmm. So there are two different problems caused by the same issue, but you have to treat them completely differently. So uh, my feeling is if I know that there's been exposure, we test for both mold allergy and mycotoxicity to make sure we're covering the bases. Do you look at, how do you um, identify mold allergy? Do you look at, do you do a lab test or just clinical picture? Uh, we do a combination, you know, we'll do skin testing, we'll do blood testing. Uh, there's several different ways you can evaluate for mold allergy. The problem with a lot of mold allergy is that it's not IgE. Mm -hmm. So a regular allergist and they do skin prick testing, or even if you do a blood test, a lot of times it'll look negative because a lot of these mold reactions don't involve IgE, which is the molecule they're looking for. So it's good to try doing several different types of tests for mold allergy just because there might be different immune reactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely um, think that's really wise and important to distinguish. And um, I, I see that um, as well. And then do you use, how do you treat mold allergy? Are you using um, SLIT or LDI therapy for treating um, mold allergy? Yeah, we do a, either a sublingual immunotherapy or what's called slit therapy, or we'll do LDA, low-dose allergy therapy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. both work. Yeah, right. You just have to try which, you know, which one works better for the patient. But no, those are great, um, great points there. Um, how about um, with toxins? Do you have any um, insights about, um, I know, know what you mentioned with avoiding exposure with our environment um, and then the mold piece. Um, but it, uh, a lot of our audience is interested in heavy metals. Um, do you have any pearls for heavy metal toxicity or what you see in your patients? 
Well, you know, if we do a six-hour provoke urine, we'll find heavy metals in just about everybody just mm-hmm. because we're exposed. The one thing, again, that doesn't correlate well is your body burden with your clinical symptoms. I see some people that we do the test, they have sky-high levels, and maybe their symptoms are fairly nominal, and other people who are very, very ill, and we do the same test, and there's hardly any metals that come out at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think it's something that we need to be mindful of, because again, we all have exposure, and depending on your sensitivity level, uh, it's not generally one of the first things I look at. It's probably one of the last things, only in that uh, in all the people I've ever done chelation therapy on, I think it's a relatively small percentage of those that really had a huge benefit when they did the therapy. Mm-hmm. I think there's so many other things that are probably a bigger chunk of the pie. But yeah, I'm a huge advocate of doing sauna therapy and colon hydrotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them are very effective at getting rid of not just toxic metals, but also getting rid of other toxins. So even if you never did a test and you had no idea what your body burden was, it would be very uh, safe and easy to do you know, either colon hydrotherapy or sauna therapy, or both, and your body is, you know, going to get rid of these things anyway. Mm-hmm. And I had some blind patients that, you know, they've tried everything under the sun. They really didn't do well, and they did colon hydrotherapy, and they felt amazing. I know, I know. I feel like a lot of our naturopathic foundational um, supporting what we call the organs of elimination are really foundational for our patients. We do a lot of colon hydrotherapy and coffee enemas in our patients too, and it's amazing um, that such a simple, relatively simple tool, um, you know, can make you know help with pain and fatigue and brain fog and um, that global detoxification effect that you get as well. Yeah, no, and uh, I know people have to get over the mental hurdle of doing <laughs> hydrotherapy, but if they can, uh, you know, try it, I say, look, try it one time, you know, see how it goes. And, uh, you know, where I'm here in California, we've got several really great colon hydrotherapists, and there's so many good ones out there that uh, really know how to do it in a way that makes it, you know, comfortable and easy. And um, I think, again, most people find, you know, even after one session that they notice they feel a little lighter, their energy's a little better. You know, once you start mobilizing those toxins, uh, it becomes pretty evident how much they're affecting you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have the same thought. I say just try one if people are a little resistant. And then usually once you get over that and you feel better, people are, have no problem doing that. And and then coffee enemas you can do at home and they're really inexpensive. I mean, they're time consuming, but they can, you know, make or break um, some people's um, how they feel in a day. So it's, it's a great self-healing tool. Absolutely. So number five, Darren, is sleep and exercise. So tell us um, your thoughts about sleep and exercise for our Lyme patients. Well, most people I see after they get Lyme, even if they were great sleepers before, tend to have sleep disturbances. And of course, when you get into that deep sleep, you know, that's when your brain, your neurons repair themselves. That's when all that magic happens of really healing. So, you know, the more you miss of that, the harder it is for your body to recover. And of course, when you're not sleeping deeply, you know, your energy suffers during the day and you're fatigued and you're weak and so forth. So I think, you know, anything we can do to help facilitate better quality sleep uh, helps with any kind of chronic illness and certainly Lyme disease. So again, I outline certain nutrients I've used to help facilitate better sleep. And it depends on whether your problem is falling asleep, staying asleep or both. Uh, but uh, again, there's a lot of things we can do without using medication to try and get your body back on track and get you back on a regular sleep pattern. 
Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I feel like, um, you know, if people have been undiagnosed for a long time, they might um, end up on, you know, prescription drugs um, that can, you know, have their side effects. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's important to, um, you know, give people alternatives. Um, and we have so many tools within naturopathic medicine. And then I'm a big proponent of sleep as well as you are um, just for the healing effect it has on, our, on the brain and our lymphatic system. Um, so I think I agree. I think sleep is huge. Do you have any um, favorite herbs or um, things like melatonin that you find work well um, with your patients? Well, I find melatonin for people whose difficulty is falling asleep tends to work well for the vast majority of folks. If the difficulty is staying asleep, I don't think that's melatonin's uh, bigger uh, Mm -hmm. thing. So I use a lot of 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan, uh, I use a lot of glycine. Uh, glycine binds to a part of the brain that helps induce GABA, which is that neurotransmitter that kind of shuts your brain off. Uh, herbs, again, we've just got a slew of herbs that are great for facilitating deeper sleep. I love passion flower. Uh, I love valerian. I love uh, lemon balm. Uh, you know, we just have so many that, uh, again, uh, Shizandra. You just have to kind of find what works well for you. And again, if you find that you've been on something for a couple of weeks and you don't really feel like it's making a difference, you know, try something different. But I like most of these other natural things because unlike some of the sleep medications, they don't generally leave you with that hungover feeling uh, in the morning where you're groggy and have a hard time getting going. So, uh, again, they're generally safe, you know, even at relatively high doses And uh, again, you just have to find that combination that works best for you. And, you know, there's also a lot of other things that I think help induce sleep that don't involve taking a pill at all. I find acupuncture is very effective for helping people get better sleep. Uh, We've been using uh, PEMF, uh, pulsed electromagnetic frequency devices that helps people get better sleep. Sometimes even engaging in like yoga, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yoga help, you know, kind of reset the nervous system a bit and help people sleep a little better. So uh, again, even for people who aren't as keen on taking uh, something to get better sleep, uh, there are other ways that you can help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not always a pill, I agree. And um, I'm sure, you know, um, you're also aware of the the increase in blue light exposure with our screens and, um, you know, the effects on um, our pineal gland and everything. I think that's also another kind of lifestyle tool not to um, you know, have your iPhone in bed with you or, you know, have your computer screen, um, you know, on right before you go to bed that can help. And, um, I like baths as well, like Epsom salt baths or using essential oils and things to kind of calm the nervous system down before, um, you know, bed, but, um, those are some great tools. And then, um, how about exercise? This can be, um, somewhat challenging, right. With some of our patients, but movement I know is a, a positive, um, thing for their lymphatic system and their bodies. Yeah. And, you know, I think with Lyme, particularly that because fatigue is such a common problem, the thought of doing exercise seems a bit daunting. And I I know how I was when I was in the throes of Lyme. I mean, (laughs) getting off the couch was uh, hard enough, let alone doing any kind of any activity that was physical. I mean, I was an athlete my whole younger life and was always into different sports and enjoyed it. And, uh, I got to the point where I was so fatigued that, you know, laying on the couch was about all I could muster up. And I think I literally one day just said, I know I'm going to sit on the floor and I'm just going to watch TV and stretch. I mean, I can at least do that. Mm -hmm. And 
started with that and then I started with, you know, a couple of laps around the house and then a couple of laps around the block. And over time, I, I started picking up martial arts. And I think seven years later, I got a black belt in karate. So, again, it took a while to kind of get my mojo back. But I wow. think any, any kind of movement, uh, even though it doesn't feel like it's much, is something. Mm-hmm. And think about our lymphatics, particularly that, you know, we need that muscle contraction to move our lymph. You know, there's nothing pushing it like our blood pressure. So uh, even that little bit of movement can make a big difference. And, you know, anything's better than nothing. So I even with the most uh, restrictive uh, people I've seen with Lyme, and I've had people even in wheelchairs where, you know, they can still use their upper body and move your body that way. So I don't feel like you have to do anything overly strenuous or long term, particularly when you're starting. Uh, it can be, again, just as simple as stretching. So, you know, I talk about other types of gentle exercise. And again, whether it's yoga or Tai Chi or walking or swimming, you know, I think it's just the consistency of doing it that makes a difference. And, you know, as your stamina gets better, as you feel better, you can tolerate more. Great. Increase your duration and intensity. But in the meantime, you know, just do what you can, but do something. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really important and see small wins and not to um, just write this off that you you can't do that. Because I, I think, um, yeah, it's so important for the lymphatic system, which is so overlooked um, in uh, medicine, I think. And I think it's one of the once we get the lymph system moving, I think that's another great tool to help people feel better. So I'm really glad you put that in, Darren. Um well, we've covered a lot. Oh my gosh, this is a great book and so many great, um, you know, tools and tips. And I know people can dive deeper in your book. Um, I know we're towards the end, but I just wanted to touch um, briefly on a therapy that you often use um, in clinical practice called low-dose immunotherapy. And I just wanted to share this idea um, in case people haven't heard about it or um, if they're kind of stuck or struggling with their own therapy to know that there's another tool out there to help them with uh, their treatment. So can you just briefly explain what um, LDI therapy is and what you've se- how you've seen it work um, well in your practice? Sure. So low-dose immunotherapy is a way to help modulate your immune system against whatever microbe may have triggered sort of an autoimmune reaction. So this was developed by Ty Vincent. He's a medical doctor in Hawaii uh, a little over four years ago, maybe going on five years. And uh, it was really based out of this other therapy we call LDA, which is a way of treating conventional allergies like mold and pollen and dust and so forth. So Dr. Vincent had been doing LDA and kind of realized that the immune mechanisms that our our immune system reacts to allergens really wasn't distinctly different than what was happening to different microbes. And again, we have some pretty good evidence in the literature that, you know, these microbes through a mechanism called molecular mimicry uh, start interfering with our immune system that our body treats it more like an allergen instead of a pathogen. So it engages a different part of the immune system, not the part that would normally just eradicate it, but a different part that's autoimmune that starts interacting with our own organs and tissues. So Dr. Vincent started playing around with, uh, I think Lyme was actually the first uh, thing he tried. And uh, from there now, I think we've moved on. We probably have 40 or 50 different antigens that we work with. But the concept is really of, you know, trying to find a way to turn off that autoimmune reaction that the microbe may have stimulated. So basically all of these extracts are dead organism. They've all been irradiated, so they can't reproduce, they can't cause infection, but they still maintain the, uh, the surface proteins and antigens we need to 
healthy immune system, you know, recognize it. And then we mix it with an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And this enzyme seems to help modulate whatever you mix it with in terms of down-regulating that immune reaction. Now, in saying that, I know Dr. Vincent stopped using the beta about a year ago, and now he basically just dilutes out this dead organism in water. So it's basically a homeopathic no-sode. And um, what we found clinically is that for people who've tried a lot of other different therapies that have failed, sometimes this makes a huge difference in, in turning off these various reactions that Lyme and all these co-infections can cause. So, you know, our one mix that we use, we call it the Lyme mix, actually has 74 different organisms in it. So Lyme and Bartonella and Babesia and Anaplasma and Ehrlichia and Rickettsia. So we're kind of covering all the bases. And then we have all of those individually for people who need it. But, uh, you know, we, again, I find it's a very safe, uh, effective therapy. Uh, the biggest downside to it is that if you have the right antigen and the wrong dose, if your dose is too strong, people will flare. And we've seen people now over the years that had pretty good flares. It's probably a different mechanism than an actual Herxheimer reaction, but you feel pretty terrible on it. So the good news is if that happens, you've now just proven that's what's causing the problem. So now it's just a function of finding the right dilution. So uh, when that happens, we forewarn people that it could happen. And if it does happen, it's annoying, but it's not to panic over because now we've really pinpointed what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And it's just a function, I said, of working through and trying to find what the right dilution is. But again, I've had people that have tried various you know, antibiotics, herbal therapies, other things, and really haven't had much success. And then they start doing this therapy. And sometimes within days to weeks, they really turn a corner. And in addition to Lyme, you know, this has been a very effective therapy for uh, people with, or mostly kids with PANS. Uh, who get this autoimmune reaction that causes this various neuropsychiatric problems where they get anxiety and OCD and literally overnight you'll see these you know mood and behavior changes in children and uh, I've had now several kids with this problem that literally within days to weeks you can shut that whole thing off uh, by using this therapy so for some people it's a game changer and uh, I think now there's probably oh maybe a hundred or more doctors that have trained with Dr. Vincent in this therapy so uh, it's out there, it's available, and um, I think uh, it's something worth uh, considering trying, uh, particularly if you've been stuck in your therapy. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I think um, working with a skilled um, physician just because um, just to help you navigate um, the dosing and the potency, I think that's important. I'm just curious, do you find with the pants um, uh, kids that the strep LDI works the best or do you um, look at other infections as well for the pans cases? Yeah, strangely enough, uh, the Lyme one has been more effective than the strep one. Makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's um, becoming more and more common uh, for these little kiddos. So I'm glad um, you found that that works. That's really hopeful for a lot of people. So, um, well, I feel like I could pick your brain all day long, Darren. I <laughs> I could ask you questions all day. Um, but no, this is uh, wonderful information. And if um, our audience wants to learn more about where to find you um, at your practice, as well as uh, where they can find your book, can you share that information with us? Sure. Well, my website is DarrenInglesND.com. That's D-A-R-I-N-I-N-G-E-L-S. N is Nancy D.com. And I've got information. There's a link through if they want to buy the book. Uh, if they want to sign up for our email list, we have a lot of great information about uh, Lyme and other things uh, uh, to help feel better. So we'd love for people to join us on social media as well. 
And again, we're always trying to provide information to educate people and help people get healthy. Great. And we'll have all of that information in our show notes as well as um, your book. And um, no, this has just been a pleasure um, speaking with you today. And I know um, our paths will continue to cross. And I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Ingalls. Thank you so much, Christine. It was great being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Darren Ingalls. Please check out his website in the show notes and please pick up a copy of his book, The Lyme Solution. I think he has a lot of great information uh, to share with us all from his experience. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. Thank you.